Welcome to the Walking Lessons Podcast. Do you enjoy role-playing? Are you sure? In this episode, Nate talks about the roles that addicts and those who love them sometimes fall into. And now, here's Nate Larkin. Last week, we began a little detour from our journey through the 12 steps with a discussion of codependency. Uh, but we talked last week about the story of Abigail and Nabal. And perhaps you saw some of yourself, or your family, some of your past experience, neighbors, friends, in the interaction between those two people. And that's one of the things I really love about the Bible. Characters uh, in the Bible don't come off as fictional, mythical people. They come off as people like us. It's one of the things that makes the Bible so credible is that even the great heroes of the faith and the heroines of the faith have their brokenness. And the Bible doesn't blink around that, doesn't paper it over, doesn't pretend that they're any better, any different than we are. It's a wonderful thing, isn't it? uh, This is Mother's Day. For those of you joining us by podcast, Mother's Day 2015. Yesterday was our daughter's 36th birthday, which makes me feel very, very old. She and her three kids came over to the house uh, along with uh, some friends, another playmate for the kids. We'll reconvene today for Mother's Day. They'll be back. So yesterday it was birthday. Today it's Mother's Day. And I love watching these kids play. Kristen has uh, five-year-old twins and an eight-year-old with special needs. And uh, they had another friend there to play and I I don't know have you noticed this I kind of lost track for a while when our kids were in our teenage years and now I'm being reminded of how play goes I've noticed this the kids get together they get their props whatever they are and then the first job is to assign roles and sometimes kids will just declare you know okay I'm Superman or (laughs) right I'm dad you're the baby I'm mom you're the okay then there is kind of this negotiation yeah So then we figure out who everybody is, and then we set a scenario. We agree upon the scenario, and then we play. It's how they do it. Now, they're children, and they have not yet learned much emotional regulation. (laughs) So throughout the course of the evening, there were several emergencies. When somebody either broke character without permission of the others, right? (laughs) Or departed from the scenario or tried to change it in some way. And that creates, I mean, now, now it's an emergency and we have to, okay. Wouldn't it be great if we actually outgrew that? You know, we can see this all through scripture. We could go through stories and But uh, let's just take one of uh, the parables that Jesus told about the the prodigal son. So two boys growing up in the house, they got the father and the young son decides at some point, you know, he's, who knows, he's 15, 16, 17, suddenly he knows everything, he doesn't need anybody, he's the smartest guy in the world, he's ready to go. And his father, not at all codependent, apparently, just kind of said, this is something this kid needs to do. He sees what's coming, but he lets the kid go. And uh, the kid goes off and acts very much like a child. He's he's not nearly as mature as he thinks he is. Uh, So he's very impulsive. He makes foolish, rash decisions. And eventually, all of that 
delusion plays itself out. And finally, in the pigsty, he comes to his senses, realizes this game didn't go nearly the way I thought it was going to go. I can't play this role anymore. I'm not the person I thought. So he heads home, and on his way home, he decides that it's time to redefine his role and change the scenario. And he figures it out on the way home. And he presents his father, when he gets home, he, he's going to give his father, okay, this is how we're going to play the game now. I used to be your son, but now I'm a servant. You just treat me like everybody else. And I'm going to work hard. You know, I'm going to make amends and I'm going to prove to you. I, I don't know where it goes from here, but this is the game we're going to play. His father does not agree to that game. Doesn't agree to that role. Uh, his father just says, oh, no, no, we're not going to play that game. And he brings out different props. Here's the robe. <laughs> Here are the sandals. We're going to have a party. This is what we're going to do. Now, in his brother's absence, the older brother had been playing a game of his own. He had a role. Suddenly, I mean, after all those years, that pesky little brother got all the attention. Finally, somebody else has been able to see what a loser the brother is. He's gone. Now he's stepped up, and he's been playing a game. He is the good kid. He's the hardworking kid. He's, he's proving his worth to his father. He comes in from the field. And this is bad news because the scenario has changed. His brother's playing the role that he's supposed to play. And there's a big outburst of anger. And it turns out that, you know what, that old brother is not nearly as mature as he thinks he is either because he throws one heck of a tantrum. Uh, back in the 19. 60s, a Canadian psychologist named Eric Byrne put out a book that quickly became a bestseller and then kind of found its way into popular culture. And, and those insights have really kind of seeped into philosophy and psychology, what he called a transactional analysis. So what, what Eric Byrne said was, to vastly simplify it, and you probably are aware of this, is that we have, all of us have kind of these ego states that we can move through. And he broke down these three major ones. He said, all of us have a parent, an inner parent, an inner adult, and an inner child. And that when we get together and we begin to interact and, and conduct transactions to one another, the nature of those transactions show what ego state we're in. So he said, for example, you know, all of us have an inner child that likes to play and it's not terribly responsible, but it's fun to be around and is impulsive and all that kind of thing. And, and it's great to get together with somebody else who is also in a child ego state. And you can just have a good time, just laugh and play. It's fun. And then all of us have this adult ego state that is uh, mature, is able to regulate its emotions, is able to be productive, engage with others, listen non-critically, and when two adults get together and work together, they can get an awful lot done. Where it goes sideways, though, is when one or the other kicks into that parent role, that critical parent role. Because when one bumps into the parent role, it can kick the other into the child role. The minute I heard this thing, I suddenly it, opened, it turned out a lot of lights for me, personally. I think one of the reasons that Allie and I really connected when we met was 
Both of us are wounded children. We both experienced a deep trauma at about the same age. Now she has a story different from mine and her trauma began earlier than mine, but we really had that in common. We connected around that very early. Now here's the thing, trauma tends to interrupt our maturing process. And it also makes us very vulnerable to addiction. So if after trauma, we find a way to moderate, modify, control our emotions, especially the frightening ones, to deal with uncomfortable reality, to dissociate from it, then addiction is an addictive behavior. Anything that can, can uh, alter our mood or mind is very, very attractive. And if we begin to default toward that, then our emotional development actually is arrested. So while we continue to grow up physically, we continue to mature intellectually, we may become productive adults, we may engage in society, on an emotional level, we're still immature. And when that child gets poked, we can become either compliant or defiant in a way that just isn't helpful. I was so grateful to have met Allie because I'll tell you one thing, Allie and I, it'll be 37 years, in little, almost in less than two weeks. One of the things that Allie and I have always been able to do is we've been able to play together. When we're both in a child ego state, we do great. And, and that's one of the th reasons I think that well, you know, helped us get through early recovery for me. I, I, th I think it's kind of ironic. Two of the cardinal sins when I was a kid were the drinking and playing cards. And during early recovery, when it was really tough to be together, we could get together, drink and play cards. <laughs> <laughs> and we still do that. We always carry cards with us, always. And if you see us out, Sometimes we can have, we can ease into an adult conversation over cards and drink. Yes, alcohol. <laughs> so we play well together. And that, that can be bad because we both, I mean, we're always up for fun. And both still, on an emotional level, pretty impulsive. And we can give each other permission to do irresponsible things. So, you know, that's you take the good with the bad. What we're learning to do, and it seems strange after 37 years, we're still learning to do this. We're learning how to work together as adults. And I've got to tell you, for us that has been tough. We're, we're getting to where we can. We can work in the house together, work on the lawn together. But for years, and I'll take responsibility for this, when we got to start to work together, I tell you what, I don't like being told what to do. I like being in charge. So what I would tend to do is I would step into the, that parent ego state and I'd start issuing orders. Well, Allie doesn't like being told what to do any better than I do. So she'd issue orders and then, you know, it's just, it just seemed better to just kind of disengage and if we're gonna accomplish things, accomplish them separately. One of the fruits of recovery for us is we're learning how to actually work together as adults. Uh, work through, talk through different, uh, difficult issues. It's not just household chores. It's engage life together as adult people. Now, 
What is commonly called codependency is a pattern that makes that kind of cooperation impossible. It's what we talked about last week with Abigail and Nabal. So Nabal, obviously, he has matured physically, he's matured intellectually, he's been successful as a businessman, he's the richest guy around, but he is not mature emotionally. He's become an alcoholic, he, he behaves irresponsibly, and when he's drunk, he's mean, he's nasty, and he hurts himself and hurts other people and puts his whole family and household at risk. Abigail, his wife, has... Uh, learn to take up the slack for him. Uh, she stands between him and other people. She serves the lubricant. She makes decisions he won't make. She does things he won't do. She doesn't bother to ask. She takes care of business. She lets him believe that he's in charge, but she's very much in a parent role most of the time. Uh, it's not a healthy relationship, and it ends tragically. You know, we try, <laughs> Eric Byrne, in that book... Uh, games people play. He said, you know, we have these roles and then we have these games that we play, and he actually had names for them, like, uh, look what you made me do, or um, I'm only doing this for you, or uh, why does this always happen to me? Okay, those were specific games. Uh, and uh, I think that when we're kind of in that codependent place, we often, we tell ourselves that we're, we're doing it for other people, but we're meeting also our own needs for significance, for security, for love. We want to be rescued and we want to rescue. Where it becomes sick, I hesitate to say sinful. I don't want to put this into a sin category, although we certainly can sin this way. But I think that I really see this as woundedness and immaturity. But where it gets us sideways is when we are doing for others what they could do for themselves and in the process stealing their dignity and personal power or when we are allowing other people or forcing other people to do for us what we can do for ourselves. On that theme, let's take another hero, hero of the Bible, a heroine of the Bible, and let's look uh, underneath the story. Let's go a, a bit, let's speculate a bit about the backstory, which is what we did with Abigail last week. I think we can all agree that Sarah, Abraham's wife, is a hero of the faith. She certainly is applauded in Hebrews, so chapter 11, the same way that Samson is, by the way, and we know that he's very much a flawed hero. We also see in Sarah somebody who grows over time. I think that's one of the reasons that I love the Bible, too, is we see character development as people grow. Abram becomes Abraham, Sarai becomes Sarah. So before she is Sarah, Sarai travels with her father-in-law and her husband, uh, a nephew, from Ur the Chaldees. They're headed to Canaan. They don't actually make it to Canaan. They settle in Haran. The father dies. Abraham, her husband, says, okay, we're going to Canaan now. They get up. They make the trip. They do settle. But then there's a famine in the land. They have to go to Egypt to get food. And what I see in Sarah is a, is a woman who is submissive. She's following her husband. Okay, we're going we're gonna to walk to the ends of the earth. Okay, I'm going. She's following directions. He's very much a take-charge guy. As is often true of those of us who uh, pretend to be courageous, there's a bit of machismo there, 
hiding uh, an underlying insecurity? Well, they no sooner get into Egypt when all of a sudden Abram starts to get very insecure. Uh-oh. He's looking around at these Egyptian women, and then he's looking at his wife, and he's going, she's, she's more beautiful than any of them. But rather than be concerned for her, he's concerned for himself. Pharaoh would probably kill me to get her, so I better do something. And he convinces her to tell Pharaoh that she's his sister, and she puts up with it. She says, okay. And Pharaoh puts her in his harem. And we don't have any indication that Abraham ever spoke up for her ever tried to come and rescue her, and she let it happen. Well, God stepped in and uh, delivered Sarah. And you know, not all that many years later, it happened again with a different king. Abraham pulled the same stunt. Would you call that um, codependent behavior? Sarah's behavior. Allowing someone to to uh, put her in that position. Now, I think it's important that we don't just limit this to marital relations, because we can adopt these roles and step into scenarios in all kinds of relationships, which is what I think Jesus was warning us against uh, when he said this to his disciples in uh, Matthew chapter 23, starting in verse 1. Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat, so you must obey them and do everything they tell you, but do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. They tie up heavy loads and put them on men's shoulders. They themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. Everything they do is done for men to see. They make their phylacteries wide and the tassels on their garments long. They love the place of honor at banquets and the most important seats in the synagogues. You understand? Roles and scenarios are very, very, very important to them. They love to be greeted in the marketplaces and to have men call them rabbi. But you are not to be called rabbi. For you have only one master and you are all brothers. Do not call anyone on earth father. For you have one father. He's in heaven. Nor are you to be called teacher. For you have one teacher, the Christ. The greatest among you will be your servant. For whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. What Jesus is describing, uh, and, and I love that Pastor Cassidy has been reinforcing to us the fact that Jesus came to build the church, and he has a very clear idea of what the church is and what it looks like. He has in mind this radically egalitarian fellowship that is, while there are certainly roles, it is non-hierarchical. And so, don't call anybody father because you have a father. It's not good for you to call somebody else father or it's not good for that person to be called father. It's one of the reasons that I am always, I'm always troubled by what I'm doing right now, standing up and teaching. I know that I have a gift to teach and a role, I can do some teaching, and it's good for me to do it. But when my role becomes my identity, that's when I get in trouble. When I think now I'm the teacher and I can't be taught. The same question that the kids ask each other before they play every time, okay, who am I, who are you? 
is the question that we really have got to answer for ourselves every day. I have to answer myself. I have to be clear in my own mind each morning. There's an affirmation that we, that we uh, repeat at, during the meetings of the Samson Society. It's toward the end of what we call the fact. Despite the lingering effects of sin, we say, I am a restored son of the Sovereign Lord, whose spirit is at work in my weakness, displaying his glory and advancing his kingdom. It can be tough when, when an addict like me gets into recovery. Now I'm focused on recovering. I can start to think that my addiction defines me, that I am the addiction. No, I'm not. I'm a restored son of the Sovereign Lord. When I was active in addiction, I told myself that what I was doing didn't affect anybody else, especially if they didn't know about it. I had no idea that while Allie wasn't clear, certainly didn't know the details of what I was doing, and while she was sheltering the kids from a lot of what I was doing, everybody was being affected by what I was doing. Now that I am in recovery, the temptation that Allie faced, you know, I owe this woman so much. I only got into recovery, by the way, because she changed the game. We had an established game that I was playing, which often kept me, uh, we could play child to child. We could occasionally work adult to adult. I would tend to pretend to be in the parent role and try to run things. Allie managed me well and protected the kids. There came a day when Allie said, I'm not going to play this game anymore. And that's when, you know, she forced things to change. If I wanted to stay in the game, I was going to have to change. The temptation for anybody in relationship with an addict is to imagine that only the addict is sick, that only the addict has a problem. And here's one of the ironic things about recovery. We get comfortable in these stories. Uh, sometimes a, 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 an addict will get into recovery without being prodded by a spouse or a partner or a friend. And uh, recovery really is the, it's a, it's a process of maturity. I now begin as an adult to face up to what I've done and I begin to grow and I learn how to interact with life on life's terms and to become emotionally stable, to grow up. Well, if those around me have developed an identity and their identity is they're the one who takes care of me because I'm always going to be the child, it can be very, very disturbing to the person I'm in relationship with and they can even try to push me back into that old role. I've noticed this in marriages. Long-term, marriages and recovery, those that survive, get much, much better. But there is this transition period which is really, really weird because the role of the addict is changing, which means that the roles, especially of that person who's closest to them, that changes too. And now we've got to somehow learn how to relate as adult to adult. Let me take you to one more scripture, Galatians chapter 6 where I think in the space of three verses, the Apostle Paul really lays out the balance that we have to strive for as we deal with recovery. Allie's in recovery whether she wants to be or not because I'm in recovery. She's being, she was affected by my addiction. She's affected by my recovery. So, um, so I'm working, she's working. Here's the balance we need to strike. Uh, Galatians chapter 6, starting in verse 1. Brothers, if someone is caught in a sin, if somebody you're in relationship with is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual should restore him gently, but watch yourself, for you also may be tempted. 
Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. If anyone thinks he's something when he's nothing, he deceives himself. Each one should test his own actions. Then he can take pride in himself without comparing himself to somebody else. For each one should carry his own load. Now, did you notice that? Bear one another's burdens because each one has to carry his own load. It sounds contradictory, doesn't it? What Paul is describing is not what's come to be known as codependency, but as, as something else, interdependence. What we often say in the Samson Society is we've learned that on any given day, everybody needs help and everybody has some help to give. Bear one another's burdens. And that may mean, by the way, helping somebody else carry their guilt and shame. It's a heavy load that an addict carries, especially early in recovery. I'm so grateful that Allie has helped and continues to help me carry the load of my past. There are going to be seasons when life is so difficult that we cannot carry on alone. I'm grateful that our marriage survived and that we were still married when Allie was diagnosed with a very rare and threatening form of breast cancer. That she didn't have to go through that season by herself, but I was able to be there at a time when this very self-sufficient, strong, and independent woman wasn't able to be self-sufficient or independent. She needed somebody full-time, and I was able to be there. It's not going to be that taxing, but she's going to have knee replacement here in another week or so, and so we'll get another round of that kind of thing where I get to be there for her. Now, honestly, I'm more comfortable in that role. I'm the good helper. I'm not the uh, physical therapy Nazi. So I can't make her do what she doesn't want to do. So Allie will be going to rehab, and I'll be going with her uh, after her surgery. Recovery has also forced me to do something which is very uncomfortable for me. I like being the helper. I don't like asking for help. I just don't. But there are times when I need other people to carry me. And I'm grateful that in those seasons, when that's been necessary, and there will be more, if God leaves me here. So here we are. We are to carry, to bear one another's burdens, and there are those among us who are going to be perpetually dependent. We have a responsibility toward those people. We have an ongoing responsibility toward the weak and powerless among us. But we can't lose sight of the fact that all of us also have to carry our own load. And sometimes the most loving thing that we can do, the most necessary thing we can do is to allow somebody to carry something we know they can carry because they have to carry it because we're not always going to be around to carry it for them we can actually destroy their confidence in themselves we can actually weaken them while making ourselves feel better assuage our own guilt and in the process do more harm than not an easy balance to strike, probably an impossible balance to maintain. I don't pretend to be there. Um, I just want us to be alert to it. I want to remind myself of it. I want to accept responsibility today for my 
my responsibility for my own recovery. Here's what I have learned in recovery. I can't recover for Allie to please her. It goes all sideways if I try to do that. I can't do it in order to get uh, you know, social acceptance. I'll just wind up resenting society. Uh, I've, got to, I've got to carry my own load today. But in those moments when, when I've lost sight of the horizon, when I'm in over my head, uh, I've got to be humble enough to ask for help and accept help. So let us be gentle with one another, eh? Thank you for joining us on this episode of the Walking Lessons Podcast. We want to hear from you. Please email your comment or question about today's lesson to walkinglessons at gmail.com or join the Walking Lessons page on Facebook. We'll see you next week.